Let's turn to John chapter 3. I'm going to read from verses 1 through 16, and I'm going to focus on, on verses 1 through 8 this morning. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And this is God's word. Three times Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You know, uh, in, in the ancient times, when you went to a rabbi, a rabbi would say, uh, you know, share his teaching and, you know, back then, unlike in today's world where the teachers are standing and everyone else is seated, like we are today, right? It was the other way around back then. A rabbi would be seated and everybody would stand around. And after saying everything, people would say, people would assess what the teacher is saying and respond and say, oh, he's telling the truth. This is real. They would validate. And they would validate by saying, amen. I, he's told us the truth. But Jesus takes that responsibility away from us. He takes actually that, that authority away from us. You know why? Because he's the authority. And Nicodemus understood this. He knew this. And so Nicodemus asks Jesus a question, and Jesus responds by saying, I tell you the truth. He begins with amen. He's taking away the authority, any opportunity for us to claim any authority to bring truth into the discussion because only one man knows. Only one man's been there. Only one man has come down. And Jesus in his authority, begins to teach Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he goes to Jesus at night because he wants to learn from him. And what Jesus says is so remarkable. It's just, I mean, if you really understand what he's saying, to a person like Nicodemus, it's a hard saying to an educated person, to a, to a respectable, respected person, a successful person. I mean, we sit here and we talk about, ah, the Pharisees. That means they're legalistic. We use that word in the church. Pharisees, they're legalistic. But think about it. Would you rather have a drug dealer sitting next to you in your home or a Pharisee? 
They were moral. They were religious. They were upright. They were respected. They were wealthy. They were educated. They had pedigrees. And Jesus goes to Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. The Christian life is so new. That change is so radical. He calls it new birth. What makes it so new? There are three things we're going to learn today. The gospel heals our ego. That's why we become new. Because the gospel heals our ego. The gospel restores our senses. And the gospel renews our rest. Jesus heals our ego. He restores our senses or our sensibilities. And he renews our rest. He brings rest to us. First, he heals our ego. Who is Nicodemus? Verse 1, he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. And so that means he's, he had to have been an older male. And he was part of the ruling council, which means that he was educated. He was pedigreed. He was trained. He was very well put together. He had status. In a, in a society where status was probably more important in some ways than, than how much money you had in your bank account. And that means he worked hard and he was successful and he had wealth. And he was a Pharisee, which means that he had high moral standing. You know what that means? Nicodemus, he didn't need new standards. He didn't need higher morals because he lived the life of the highest standards. And yet he comes to Jesus. Jesus has no education. He has no credentials. He has no pedigree. He has no training. And he calls him rabbi, teacher. That's a radical humility. For a person of Nicodemus' stature, going to a person from an outward perspective, looking at Jesus, Jesus was very unpopular. And even though he was unpopular, in verse 2, he comes to him at night, probably so that he wouldn't be noticed. And he says, teach me. He's asking questions. Let's discuss this. Very open heart. Very admirable. And Jesus doesn't applaud that, that humility. Verse, verse 2, I mean verse 3, he, he says something equally radical. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You know what he's saying? What does it mean to be born again? You need to start over. I mean, look at the audacity. That's remarkable. This guy went the highest when it comes to education, the highest when it comes to respectability in society, the highest when it comes to a person's bank account. And Jesus says, you need to start over. Nothing that you've ever accomplished counts. Nicodemus wasn't irreligious. He was extremely religious. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you need to start over. Now think about this. When the average person hears the phrase born-again Christian, what do you think of? Usually you think of a super emotional experience, somebody who's had an incredibly emotional experience, or somebody who's now, you know, who's very irreligious at one point and has turned very religious. Somebody who's very immoral at one point and has turned very moral. That's what we think about. But Nicodemus, I mean, we need to hear this. That's why, if that's what you've been thinking, we need to hear this. Because Nicodemus blows both views away. Right? Because being born again, it cannot just be a call to a higher morality because Nicodemus had the highest morality. 
And being born again could not be a call to some emotional experience because Nicodemus doesn't come to Jesus emotional, emotionally. Born again, if anything, challenges your view of morality, what it means to be right before God, what it means to be good. Now, I'm looking around, and a lot of people here are like me. You look like me. You look better than me. You're younger, smarter, got your whole life ahead of you. But you come from a background and a context a lot like mine. And we equate goodness with newness. We equate goodness, being good, with being a Christian. And we look to these emotional experiences, whether you've gone to some conference or some retreat or something like that, why? I mean, Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and he says, it doesn't matter how good you are, it doesn't matter how, how well your life is put together, it doesn't matter how emotional your experience, spiritual experience, how real it felt, how you feel about Jesus in this moment. It doesn't matter how well you lived, how good you are, how respectable you are, you need to be born again. In fact, he says you must be born again. In other words, it is a requirement. And the only way that you, if you are like a Nicodemus, and if you're like me growing up, right, in a, in a very, very... Um, in a context or a society that applauds and celebrates only those who are successful, only those who are good-looking, only those who are wealthy, only those who live right, the only way that you could see what Jesus is saying is if you let go of your pride, your ego. Oh, you say, but I worked so hard. I deserve certain things. And that thought will ruin you. If that's what you hide behind in order to feel better about yourself compared to other people. The gospel heals your ego. I'm going to say something to you. <clears throat> there are people here in this room. There are people here watching in today's live stream that rely, that rely on, they cling to their past experience, their feeling as a validation of their faith. And I'm going to ask you, to at least suspend briefly, suspend the notion. I want you to be slightly skeptical of that experience. That some decision you made decades ago is, is what brings you here. That's what makes it real. It could very well be true. But I want you to at least slightly just suspend that for a second. There are other people who say, oh, I, I grew up here. I've been here. This is, you know, and I get the gospel. And yet you can't take critique. Not even the slightest, I mean, critique will just ruin you. You're not teachable, and, you're, and people know. You may not know that, but people know that about you. And you may believe that you understand the gospel, but you never really demonstrate a natural sense of wonder in your life anymore because, I mean, to demonstrate some form of wonder is to act like you've never experienced this before, and you've got to keep trying to convey to people that you're the one who gets it. There's this deep undercurrent of pride, I'm going to say it this way. You do not get it. If that's you, even the slightest bit, you missed it. You could be here. That, you know that's sad? That's, you could be here all your life, your entire spiritual discovery life, and miss it week after week, month after month, year after year, and we've been here almost 10. 
So you're going to need to suspend that notion for a bit and ask yourself again, is your ego in the way? Is that the biggest barrier to a real relationship with God? You can sit there and talk about circumstances and suffering. And I don't want to demean that. But Jesus is saying it's your pride. Jesus is saying it's your ego. I mean, these people, like Nicodemus, educated, wealthy, respectable, moral, they're the ones who had Jesus killed. So either right now you're going to be crucifying your pride or you're going to be crucifying Jesus. But if you crucify your pride, you're going to be reborn. You're going to be made new. The gospel heals your ego. Secondly, the gospel restores your senses. In verse 5, Jesus says you have to be born of water and the spirit. What is water? Water is life-giving. Water is cleansing. Water strengthens. God's spirit, what he's saying is, and you see this throughout the, the Bible, throughout, these terms are almost synonymous. Uh, God's spirit is, in essence, Jesus is saying, is life-giving. God's spirit is cleansing. God's spirit strengthens you. And what Jesus is saying, if God's spirit is in you, you will have new life no matter how helpless you are in your sin at times, how you feel, you know, just absolutely helpless in your sinfulness. Jesus says you will have new life no matter that helplessness. You will have cleansing in your life no matter the brokenness, no matter the guilt. You will have strength in your life no matter the weakness. In fact, those are the prerequisites. Come to Jesus right now and say, you know what? I've been putting up a barrier with my goodness here. I've been putting up a barrier with my goodness because I am helpless in my sin. Other people maybe you put up a great act. You put up a great shield, a great face, but you know that you are helpless in sin. You know that there is guilt and brokenness in your life. You know that there is a weakness And that's the prerequisite. If you come like that, knowing that, it's very possible it's set up for you to receive the gospel. Now, that's important because for most of us, we tend to think that being born again means that you're just going to become better as a person. You're just going to become, you know, uh, there's, there's more behavioral modification. And that's the mistake. That's the mistake. Because on one hand, the gospel, it does produce change. There's great change. Sometimes it's like a pickaxe, like it's like automatic, and sometimes it takes time, but there is change in your life. There's fruit, change in behavior. It's visible. But Jesus says you need new birth. In other words, there has to be a transformation. Now think about this. As a child, you're taught to be good. Goodness. You're, you know, when you're celebrated when you do something good. Good boy. Good girl, right? But we're often taught these things without the need for newness. And so what happens is when you do something wrong, it leads to shaming and guilting and fear-driven tactics that lead to jealousy and bitterness and resentment and fear, right? That's what happens. You're taught that from the moment you're born, pretty much. In this generation, they say, we have a lot of Gen Z folks here, right? 
They say that when you tell a person who's Gen Z that you've done something wrong, they take it as you are wrong. Something's wrong with you. That critique, that sm- it could be something very, very small, but it just devastates you. You know why? Because you were brought up with fear and shame. And that was the, ins- that was the motive for you to do good. As you grow, you recognize that if you're nice, if you're good, you get celebrated. And yet you're not new. And as you grow into, you get a little older, you, older, you get into high school and college, in that culture, you want to start meeting new people and you want their approval. And you know you work for that approval. And so you start to do things that are almost contrary sometimes to what you've been brought up with. These are good things. And you're now tempted to do things that are opposite of that to be accepted, contrary to what you've been taught. Why? Because you don't want to be alone. You don't want to be the one person in college that's alone. You want people's love. You want, you want to fit in. You want approval. And so it's tiring. It's fatiguing. And it just, again, brings back the jealousy and the shame, the self-loathing when you, when you fail, resentfulness when you fail. And then you get older. When you get older, there's this undercurrent of loneliness that's a theme now running in your life. And you think, ah, but if I have somebody in my life, a woman or a man in my life, that's going to solve the problem. If there's only that one person that I meet and that person just gives me all their attention and love, then everything's going to be okay. And as a result, what happens? We get into relationships that we have no business getting involved in. We stay in relationships longer than we probably should. Some of us have grown into sexual uh, activity, promiscuity. You've abused other people. You're getting abused. Life becomes this game almost of being manipulated or manipulating other people. And so you're absolutely broken. And you say, you know what? No more women in my life. No more men. Forget it. What do you pour into next? Success. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to build my career. I'm going to make it by, I'm just going to accomplish things in life. I'm going to join a cause. And so you end up fighting and lying and disparaging and cheating and gossiping. And that means that you're manipulating people and getting manipulated because it's happening to you. And you're doing this because it's a, it's a dog-eat-dog world. you got to survive. you got to survive. you gotta, you got to get ahead. Stay afloat. And then you realize sometimes you get things by being good. Sometimes you get things by getting drunk. Sometimes you get things by obeying the rules. And sometimes you get things by sleeping around with people. And as a result, what happens? There's guilt and shame and there's jealousy and there's anger and there's you're just approval starved, love starved. You're lonely still. That deep undercurrent of loneliness is still there. That's the fruit All those things start coming back as a theme in your life. Why? Because you're not new. You're not made new. You know what's happening? New birth is not, help me to improve. You go to Jesus for a supplement, like vitamin. You know? New birth is not, I need to fix my self-esteem and I feel accepted in the church. New birth is not, hey, there's good people in the church. That's where I'm going to make my home. I'm I'm just going to get to know people. It's like some sort of country club, a social club. New birth is not, this is where I'm going to find my worth. This is where I'm going to to hook into these people and this community. 
as my identity. Nah, new birth is not that. New birth is not, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm just going to come to God for just a couple things to improve my life. I just need a few areas, of, there's a few areas of weakness. That's not what new birth is. New birth, Jesus says, is a new identity, a new sense of worth, a new birth. And yet most of us still operate as if we've become Christians to merely improve, tweak things. Jesus is telling Nicodemus essentially, stop coming to God as a mere supplement for your life. Come to God for a whole new life because we need it. And when you do, it heals your senses. I'm gonna kind of walk through this pretty quickly, okay? What do I mean by it heals your senses, restores your senses? In Ephesians chapter four, the Apostle Paul is writing to the ancient church in the city of Ephesus. It's a, uh, an outpost of the Roman Empire. And he says essentially, stop living like your old self. And explains what that old self, what that old life is like. He says, the old self is darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. That's what he says. It's like you're living in this dark room, pitch black, and as a result, you can't see. You're just reaching for things. You're blind. You don't even realize you're blind because that's what you grew up. That's what you're born into. But why? He says, after all, it's because of the ignorance that is in you. In other words, it's not just because you've been brought into this circumstance of blindness. You actually choose it. You neglect the reality that goes beneath the reality that you see. That's blindness. You choose to live this way. And the apostle, the apostle Paul, he explains why. He says it's because your hearts are hard, because of the hardening of their hearts. Your heart is the motivational center, the core, right? Oftentimes, it's not the actual organ. What the apostle Paul is referring to is the motivational center of your life, the core of your life that drives everything that you do. We all have that. We all have something that we're pursuing as that thing that if I just have that thing, I'm going to be okay. And the Apostle Paul says that we are, our hearts are hard, so that motivational core in us is, is, is hard. And so we're just fixated. We're just stone-cold fixated, directed in one direction. There's certain things that we want. That's what we believe. It's our core values. It's our core belief in life. If I just have these things, then I'll be okay. And Paul, Paul says, we choose to live in this old self. We're dead, essentially. Stone cold, dead, corroding away because our hearts are hard. And he says, as a result, we've lost sensitivity. We've lost sensitivity. So we give ourselves over to every desire. And he says, and he says this is the point, and there's a continual lust for more. But Jesus here in this passage, he says, the new birth, verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You see the leaves rustling. You see it. In a sense, being born again is not about losing your senses. It's not about leaving your senses at the door. But it's about getting that it's God's spirit that's doing the work of renewal. You cannot renew yourself. God's spirit, something miraculous, something tremendous, something incredible has to happen in your life by God's doing for you to be renewed. And to get that, in order to understand that, in order to sit there and say, all these other things that I've been going after because I've just lost sensitivity and so I'm just trying to feel something in my life. Oh, and we turn to lots of things for that. 
That's why community is very addictive, even in the church. We're more addicted to the church community than actually the meaning of the church itself. It becomes a very big barrier. But to get that reality, you need new senses. That means that God gives you the ability to sense spiritual realities. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You may never have sensed it before. New birth means now I can see in the darkness. I see my sin. I hear the words of God, these words that have been preached so many times in my life, but I'm tasting its goodness. I can sense that God's presence is in my life. I can see things that I might have known about, I might have heard about, but I've ignored previously in my life. God's word that I ignored all my life now becomes food for me. I can taste it. Before the visible reality was all I ever knew, it's all I ever looked for, it's all I ever sought after, but something has become so tangible in my life. God's word has become so real to me, so personal to me, it thrills me, it comforts me, it convicts me, it shapes me. My motivational core has shifted from the things that I'm pursuing. Oh, I can tell what we're pursuing. You just have to go on someone's Instagram account. You can tell. God is personal now. I can taste him, his goodness. I can see his faithfulness. Oh, before I used to think God's not faithful. He doesn't answer any of my prayers. Now I see, looking back, how faithful God has been. I can hear God's word. He's speaking to me. I feel there's a touch of God. There's an embrace of God. I sense his warmth, his presence in my life. These are senses that hit the soul and they stay with you. And it heals your deepest longings because before I wanted the embrace of a person. And I realized what I've been looking for all along is God's embrace. That's the warmth that I need. heals your deepest longings and all those broken attempts that we've made to heal our lives on our own. The gospel restores our senses, gives us new senses. And someday in heaven, we're going to have, I mean, we have what, five senses now? You know, famous commentators say in heaven, we're going to have 5,000 senses, whole new senses. Lastly, the gospel restores our rest, our fatigue. Many of us, we have high standards. Oh, and high standards. When you have high standards that you place on yourself, you're always on the brink of falling apart. You understand what I mean when I say that? I mean, if you have high standards, you understand what I mean. When you have high standards for yourself, you're always on that brink. It's almost like you're always, you're just barely touching that line of a breakdown. And we try to justify whatever life decisions we make because we try to to live these moral lives and because you've worked very hard and you're extremely well-educated and uh, you're, you're, you know, at Metro, our vision has been to equip the leaders of the city. That's you. You're like, well, I'm not a mayor. I'm not running for office. If you are well-educated, do you know the combination of education that sits just in this room alone? 
If you take the, the, the wealth potential and the earning potential of just the very people sitting in this room, you are the leaders of the city. Where you go is where the city will go. Do you understand that? Scholars will tell you that if 15% of a city, 15% of its population moves in one direction, the rest of the city will go. Can you imagine what will happen if you saturate every neighborhood with a gospel preaching church? What will it do for all of our sense of work? What will that do for all the gossip that flows around in the city? The hatred and the malice, what will it do? It's another sermon. You see, we're educated, you're wealthy, you're good-looking, beautiful people here, lots of friends, or lots of potential to make new friends. You're well-respected. You're like Nicodemus. You're like Nicodemus. But the problem is we are using all these things, these blessings. I mean, none of you worked for your looks. I guess nowadays sometimes you could work for your looks, I guess. You can pay for good looks. But most of us here, none of us here, we, we, we didn't earn your looks. It was given to you, right? God had given these blessings to you in your life. And we're using all these things in a sense to justify living in our pride, to justify living in anger, in resentment. We justify our jealousy. We justify our turning our noses down at other people. That's what we do. You have taken these gifts. I mean, we just prayed that in our communal prayer together today. We've taken these gifts that God has given us. We've taken our skills and our abilities and we've consumed them for our own glory, for our own selves. And we feel like since you're just a good person, you can avoid ever addressing the deep-rooted sins that are still festering and have been festering because they've gone unaddressed all your life. And so in a sense, you know what that means? You've been fighting God for control over who owns your life. And you've been doing that since the day you were born. That's why we need to be born again. Because all of life is a fight for ownership. Who owns your life? Who owns your bank account? Who gave you that job? Who gave you your looks? Who gave you the, the house that you live in? Who gave you your parents, good or bad? Who gave you anything that you consider a blessing in your life? Your experiences, even the tough ones that have shaped you and grown you. Who gave you any of those things? All of life is a quest for ownership. Either you're fighting to claim these things for Christ, or you're fighting and claim these things for yourself. But the very nature about being born again is what? Babies, when they're born, control nothing. And they've contributed nothing. Babies have no say in being born. The problem is there's something in our hearts that says you need to contribute something. You need to play a part or else you're worthless. You need to have some say in it. Otherwise, what's the point of investing in it? Don't I get a say in any of this? God just kind of chooses to do what he does? I mean, I have skills. I 
pretty mature. I'm pretty wise. The hardest part about being educated and wealthy, the biggest challenge of a pastor in a church like Metro is that everyone thinks they're a genius to some degree. Everyone thinks they're talented. Everyone's well put together. And you are. But the hardest part about ministering to a people like Metro is that it makes it exponentially more difficult for you to admit your own sin, to actually own that sinfulness. When that, would, that actually makes you 50,000 times more winsome, that's a fruit, but we'd rather cling to the fact that we've earned something. That's the deficiency. We cannot own our sinfulness. We cannot own the fact that the reality, it is a reality that there are deficiencies in our lives that are debilitating spiritually, that we are in wrong. We're not just wrong at times. We are in the wrong. You know why? It's because all those things that you take pride in, those, those things, those things, you, you thought gave you leverage over other people. In fact, you thought that those things even give you leverage over God. By the way, it's why we're always comparing ourselves with other people. It's why we always get envious and covetous and jealous of other people because we still think it's about leverage over God. I mean, we know cognitively that that's not what the gospel is, and yet that's the way we functionally live our lives. It's because we don't get the gospel. And that's why we're constantly still working to earn people's approval. We're constantly working to to get the love of other people. And it's also why we're constantly anxious. And we're so tired. We're so fatigued. Being born again begins with owning the reality that you have been trying to save yourself. And you've been fighting God when, when salvation, eternal salvation is given to you. You're still fighting for God, fighting God for control all your life. You want to have a contribution. You have to admit and you have to say, you know, I've been, I, I'm letting go of all the things that I thought gave me life. Things that I've been proud of, like Nicodemus. Things that I believed made me attractive. You ever see a baby at birth? They're naked, completely helpless. No baby comes out and say, why did you bring me out here? I was something. I was somebody in there. Nobody does that. The gospel teaches, naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Surrender to the kingship of Christ, the authority of Christ. And that's going to save you from the weightiness of your fears and your anxieties that need to perform you. We're just always on with Jerry Bridges, uh, a famous uh, scholar in the gospel. He's, he says we're always on this performance treadmill. We're not going anywhere, but we're constantly running this, just keep afloat, just to keep up. The gospel saves you from that weightiness. The weightiness of your sin, the weightiness of guilt, the weightiness of shame, the weightiness of anxiety, the weightiness of anger, the weightiness of resentment, the weightiness of, the weightiness of depression so that you can rest. Another thing, babies, when they're born, they're never happy. You know why? I mean, if you ever see a baby be born, I mean, they're just wailing. You know why? It's cold, and, and, you know, their lungs, for the first time, they're taking a breath. There's bright lights. Everyone's poking at them and stuff like that. 
They, babies look jacked up when they're born. You guys know that, right? They're like flat heads. It's not just because we Asian, right? They're, they're like, they got like flat heads and, and they're just like aliens, you know, when they're born. And they're just wailing and cry, crying for the first time, right? It's because reality is hitting them and there's no more cushion. There's no more buffer. They were actually really cozy in their mother's womb. Jesus doesn't say to Nicodemus, when you're born again, you're going to get a better life. He says, you take that breath, it's going to be cold. It's going to hurt sometimes. You're going to suffer sometimes. If you get a new life, it's only going to happen through pain and the suffering of someone else. Somebody else has to suffer for you to have a new life. A mother risks her life every time a child is born. But when you're born again, someone doesn't just risk his life. He gave his life. And it's not just that you get experience. Uh, it's not just that, uh, that you're going to experience the life that you have, the visible realities that we live. When you're born again, somebody suffered, gave up his life so that you would experience something far greater, a greater reality, those greater senses on the cross. Jesus Christ suffers the ultimate pain, the ultimate death. You know, a mother, when, you get, when she gives birth, she can take an epidural, right? They stick a, an anesthetic right, right through the spine pretty much, and she's, there's tremendous relief after a while. But Jesus Christ, do you know when Jesus was on the cross, in order for you to be born again, they actually offered him some form of anesthetic, and he refused. Jesus Christ, this is the Son of God, our King. He had ultimate status, ultimate. You want to talk about pedigree? He was the King of the universe, the creator and the sustainer and the governor of all things. That is status. That is a pedigree. That is approval. The Spirit of God, when he was being baptized, the heavens opened up, and God, looking down at his son, said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. That is embrace. That is the warmth of the experience of God in your life. But when he came to this world, he was born without status, gave up that pedigree, and on the cross they stripped him naked, and he was helpless. And did he say, everyone's crying out, well, if you are who you say you are, save yourself. And he say, yeah, I'm going to save myself. I can do it. I'm going to do it. Is that what he did? Everyone was telling him to, but he looked to God, and the wrath of God himself is pouring out on him as a penalty for our sins. He cries out to God, and he says, he cries out to God for help, for relief. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because what he's saying in that moment, as the wrath of God is pelting him, he says, now I've lost the ultimate status. Now I've lost the ultimate pedigree. Now I've lost the ultimate wealth, being in the Father. Now I've lost, now I've been forsaken, now I've been disowned by the Father. Why? So that you can have a Father. Now I've been disowned. Why? So that you could be owned. I've been forsaken. Why? So that you could be accepted. I've experienced the darkness and the coldness. On the cross, the skies grew dark, it says. Why? So that you could have light. 
You can be unblinded. You can experience warmth. And on the cross, he says, I thirst. There's no cleansing. There's no comfort. There's no relief. There's no water. Why? So that you could be born of water and a spirit. God has departed from me. Why? So God could be present with you. Jesus Christ lost the ultimate pedigree so that you could be called children, sons of God. The apostle Paul doesn't say sons and daughters. You know that? It's not because he was a chauvinist. In those ancient times, women had no rights. If you said sons and daughters, people would be confused. Like, Why would anybody want to be a daughter? The apostle Paul is saying you could be a prostitute in Rome, not a citizen, and still be a son of God a firstborn of God. That's greater than any amount of wealth or pedigree or network or family that you can have on your own. It's what you need. The moment Nicodemus realized that, when he saw that, it changed him. It shaped him. Now, if you don't believe this, oh, then you're going to be working. Your death sentence is a lifetime of anxiety until one day your life in its death, is going to burst into the ultimate anxiety. You're going to be angry for the rest of your life until one day your life is going to burst into anger itself. You're going to complain and grumble for the rest of your life until one day your life, C.S. Lewis says, is going to become a grumble. That's what hell is, just one grumble. Nicodemus got it. Because to the degree that you trust the gospel, life will become new. In John chapter 19, I mean, a proud man like Nicodemus, if he could change a wealthy, educated, pedigreed, respectable man like Nicodemus, it can certainly change any of us here in this room. In John chapter 19, when Jesus died, there was one person that asked for the body. You know who that was? It was Nicodemus. They brought his body down. He dressed his body. He prepared Jesus' body for burial. You know what that means? He put spices on Jesus' body. He cleaned the blood of Jesus getting on him, covering him. It's not just symbolic. He helped bury Jesus. Every one of Jesus' friends took off, abandoned him. The rulers and the Pharisees cheered on his death. And Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees. That means he's standing up against his friends, against his society, puts his life at risk. And he gets down there and he does what only women actually in ancient times were called to do, the spice work and the burial preparation. Nicodemus is doing it. He sheds his his ancient masculinity, his ancient view of status, lowers himself undignifies himself, gets dirty. You know why? Because he became new. And that can happen to you. Let's pray.